Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is 30 Minutes of Science on your radio. We're so happy to have you join us um, because, you know, we love talking about science with you. I mean, it's as simple as that. My name is Claire and with me this week I have, of course, Stu and Chris. Hello to the both of you. Um, nice to have you here. Nice to see you again. What sort of what sort of science do you have for our listeners this week, Stu? Well, you know I love a good year of, um, <laughs> and this this year is the year of something which probably I think people do you know honestly take for granted. It's something that nearly everyone would use every day in some way. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about glass. It is the International Year of Glass 2022. Really? Yeah, it really oh. is. I didn't I didn't see that coming. Yeah, no. No one saw that coming exactly. Um no, yeah, um, so so you know the the UN has international years of various things that are important to people and um it, you know it seems it's it does seem like an odd choice, but I'm going to talk a little bit about why is it important that we sort of recognize the value of glass and what does it do for us and what does it do for science in <laughs> is probably an important question to ask and there's some pretty important things i've got to say so we'll get to that later on in the show but yeah international year of the glass um or year of glass uh and i can you know i, I know all of us actually wear glasses so we should we should they're not be... made of glass though well some of them are they used to be. They used, <laughs> they to, used be. to be. Yeah. Well, um, that's something I can cheers to in my glass full of beer. Sorry, I had to explain my joke there. Terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Chris, what do you have for us this week? I have a story that, look, it's, it's a kind of a new research story that I think has given people a, kind of a lot of hope. Uh, it's regarding uh, sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS, which is a terrible topic. Um, you know, it's something that um, is very scary for, for any parent. Um, but there was some recent research done in Sydney that um, potentially found, I guess causing it to cause is, is, um, is going a bit too far, but a possible way of testing for vulnerability to SIDS. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to have a bit of a look what that says. It's... Look, it is preliminary research, so I think people are getting maybe a little bit too excited about it, perhaps. Right. But it's certainly, it's it's the kind of thing that, um, yeah, that people, I guess, are holding out hope for. And it's a way to to understand better what causes it and then obviously how better to prevent it. Mm. Although we've done a great job of preventing it so far, and I'll, I'll run through that as well. Brilliant. So a bit of a um, medical research update on SIDS. Um, Well, it sounds incredibly important um, and looking forward to hearing a bit more about that. On with the show. (laughs) 
Now, this is going to seem like a bit of a weird thing to celebrate, I guess, but this year is actually an, and officially the International Year of Glass, according... I, mean, I, I, can't, I can't believe it. There's a lot of things to celebrate. Glass is pretty low on the list of things I can imagine the UN wants to celebrate, but... You know, there must be something in it, Stu. I'm looking forward to hearing what that is. Well, look, the UN decide these things, so they've decided that it's the International Year of Glass. Um, you, you're right, though. Glass is such a common material. We probably rarely think about it unless we break it and then we are often sharply reminded of its existence. <laughs> um, but, but the UN, it seems, were lobbied by the International Commission on Glass. Big glass. I, again, I'll, I'll, I'll have you know. Yeah, who knew that there was an international commission on glass? Sorry for all those uh, glass manufacturers out there. Um, but they were they did lobby to formally recognise the importance of this ceramic, and it is classified as a ceramic. Yeah, was it? Okay. Um, to human civilization, and they were awarded for their efforts in May last year. So what is so special about glass? Well, you could say the answer is pretty clear. Oh! Okay, yeah. Um, if you can't think of a reason why glass is important to you, take a good look at yourself <laughs> in a mirror, obviously, is the easiest way to do that. <laughs> now, humans used naturally occurring glass, which is known as obsidian or volcanic glass, for making tools and weapons very, very early in human development. Um, but we were not able to make it ourselves until somewhere around 3,500 BCE. Mm-hmm. So probably five, a bit more than 5,000 years ago. And is that because we couldn't get fires hot enough? Basically, that's the reason. So the earliest manufactured glass objects ever found are, are glass beads and various decorative objects kind of used, most likely used in place of precious stones in jewellery and things like that. But the process was very difficult. You have to get temperatures up to 1,700 degrees Celsius, which is a really high temperature to Mm. make glass. It's Um, not something you can get in your campfire or your castle fire or even. Yeah, and I guess, you know, they, they probably did sort of discover it accidentally after some sort of catastrophic fire, I guess, that they sort of found some glass and worked out what it was. But it wasn't After they put a stubby in the in the fire. <laughs> well, where did they get the stubby from? But it wasn't until the invention of, of blowpipes um, that they could get the fires hot enough so they could actually feed oxygen that built up the fire hot enough. And that also led to glass blowing. But that really glass making really took off when they when they figured that out. And it wasn't until uh, the first century BCE in what is now Syria, that they figured this out. Um, and about two centuries later, Romans began using glass for windows, which is possibly one of the most common uses of glass. Uh, but we, we more or less take this for granted as a building material. So, you know, if you think of um, just any rooms that you spend time in, uh, there's, there's not many rooms that you'd spend any time in that have no windows in them really. Yeah. And if you do, it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not a pleasant place. It's not to a spend pleasant experience time. in my experience. So, you know, think, think about all those, those people who lived in buildings before, uh, yeah. you know, before the common era. Um, but the technology of glassmaking has advanced a long way since then. And architects especially 
take advantage of new techniques to use glass in buildings on a massive scale. You know, many of our city buildings basically have a glass shell around the entire building. There's no sort of other materials visible on a lot of modern buildings. Um, Obviously, these are toughened and reinforced glass panels, a a far cry from the... uh, the the uh, the ancient beads that people were making five thousand years ago, but glass itself is made from a very commonly available source, and it is, I guess, you know, technically it's non-renewable, but it's also highly highly recyclable. It's sand, like sands through the hourglass. Yeah, well, they had to get the sand to make the hourglass. They didn't did. They? <laughs> they did. That's right. Um, <laughs> Now, depending on where you are in the world, silicon dioxide is in great abundance on beaches and in soils in the form of sand grains. And this is the basic ingredients, uh, the basic ingredient of glass. You heat up sand hot enough and it melts and each sand grain becomes indistinguishable from the other sand grains and you get molten glass, which can then be shaped using various methods. So when it cools, it becomes a solid, except, and this is the really weird thing about glass, in terms of physics, it's not a solid. See, I've heard this before that it, yeah, that it's an incredibly viscous liquid. It's not quite a liquid. It's what they call an amorphous solid. So an amorphous solid, right? It's not. It's not a solid because, in physics terms, that means that it's got certain physical properties in terms of physics. So it's arranged in a certain way. But because of the chemical nature of silicon dioxide, it doesn't form a crystalline structure as it cools. Oh, right. Which is what most substances do when they form a solid from a liquid state. So you think of ice crystals or salt crystals or any of those kind of substances that we can readily um, picture forming into solid masses. So so is that lack of crystals, does that give rise to the um, transparency characteristics? Partly, yes. So the individual molecules are arranged randomly with no real pattern to them. So they're more like a liquid or a gas, but thinking of in those terms doesn't help, you know, if you accidentally walk, try and walk through a glass pane. <laughs> they're not, sure. not going to make way for you. Um, but they don't have a regular pattern. And this is why also partly why, last, uh, why light can pass through mm. relatively unchanged, especially if the glass is flat because there are no real boundaries between the molecules to disrupt the light. So there's no, you know, the, the light signals are pretty much the same on one side of a pane of glasses when they hit the other side, because there's nothing disrupting or reflecting or absorbing them in the pane of glass. Uh, But the boundaries on the outside of the glass does allow us to use it for another very important scientific purpose. It allows us, to grind pieces of glass into lenses, which are specifically designed to bend light in very particular ways. So um, you're not just talking about your your you know your reading glasses lenses here, are you? Well, no, but obviously the original reading glasses were the same kind of thing. But if we grind lenses, and this is also using a very, very purified form of, uh, form of silicon dioxide. So it's got to be 99.9% pure silicon dioxide with no impurities to get these kind of lenses. Um, but we can grind them into lenses which bend light so that magnifies objects 
and we can put a whole bunch of these in a row and we can magnify things that are either really, really far away or we can magnify things that are really, really small and we can look at them and see them as if they're much bigger. So without these glass lenses, we would have no microscopes and we would have no telescopes. So there's a whole bunch of sciences that wouldn't happen if it wasn't for glass and the 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 amazing capabilities of glass. Oh, Stu, you have sold me. Sign up 2023 is the year of glass as well. Oh, we'll just keep going. We'll just, we'll have, just keep going. We'll have a century of glass. <laughs> um, but look, it's really it's really hard to think of a way we could get through the day without relying on glass one way or another. Um, and it's probably a good thing to remember how even the simplest of scientific discoveries can lead to technology that can change the world. So I think we should all raise our glasses to glass. Okay, yes, you listen to Lost in Science. And as I was saying, I am talking about SIDS or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, which, uh, look, as a parent of, well, they're nearly two years old now, our twins. Um, so time has really gone on. But it is in the first year of life, it is like one of the big fears. Um, because the whole thing of it, it is, you know, sudden and unexpected. And it, you just don't know exactly whether it's going to happen or not. Um, SIDS is defined as the unexpected death of an infant less than one year old when investigations can find no other cause. Um, so yeah, it is, it is that, uh, it, that really unknown, I think, makes it particularly scary. But of course, as anyone knows, and as, as new parents find out, is that there, um, there are ways that can, you can reduce the chance of SIDS. And these have been very effective over time um these mm. are so so the um frequency of sid related deaths has decreased over time since um yeah since uh the the early 90s when the new recommendations came in and these were um, like the one that people know best is the recommendation of sleeping on the back rather than say on the front and look i did a bit of reading and i couldn't find out exactly where this breakthrough came from there's a lot of people trying to claim credit for it i think um, depending on what country you're in. Um, so there was a big study done in New Zealand. There were some pioneers in the UK and in the US and some in Australia who claim a bit of credit for it as well, as in particular the, um, the Menzies Institute for Medical Research in Tasmania did a lot of work on it, particularly right. because they found that the rates of SIDS were about double in Tasmania as they were in the mainland. So they really wanted to understand what was going oh. on there. Yeah. Um, so all these things kind of around the world kind of came together. And around about 1991, these new recommendations started being, I guess, 
um, campaigns, I suppose, um, to parents to try and give them these new techniques. And the rates really dropped. I found the collecting figures of the, at the actual rate, but um, from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, for one of their publications, they said that in 1986, the rate of SIDS was 203 per every 100,000 live births. Um, it's a funny way of putting it. They often express diseases in 100 you know, per 100,000. So it was 203 mm. per 100,000 in 1986. By 2003, it was down to 29 per 100,000. Wow, okay. Um, and the most recent figure I found from one of their publications from 2017, and it is, for 2017, it was 6 per 100,000. That's quite a reduction. That is a huge reduction from wow. 200 to, to 6. That is wow. a, a very huge reduction. But, you know, it is still that kind of thing that, that we know that obviously the, the sleeping position is a big mm. factor, but it's not the exact cause. It's not a definite cause for it. And, mm. and it's also, I guess, something that you need to continue to educate parents on. It's not going to sort of, you know, it's not... If, if you didn't, it would just get worse again, right? Yeah, but especially because, you know, um, there are other reasons why you might want, say, to sleep your baby on its front. They're more comfortable that way. They might want mm. to sleep on their front. Um, and, you know, having to to watch these things is, yeah, is, is a challenge. So you're quite right. But, yeah, we also really want to understand exactly what is going on here. Um, mm. When you have something that is so unexpected, such a huge impact on people's lives. Um, so the researchers in the field, they talk about that triple risk model. So they're essentially saying there are three factors that come together. You have um, something like, you know, the sleeping position, something that causes a, a stress on the infant. You have a critical developmental period, you know, in this particular, this, this first year of life. And you have some sort of vulnerability in the baby themselves, something that makes them more vulnerable to this. And that's the puzzle. That's what researchers are trying to find out is what actually causes that. And this is where this new research uh, from Sydney, this is the Children's Hospital in Westmead, um, gives a bit of a clue. So this was published in May 2022 in the Lancet journal eBiomedicine. Um, lead researcher Dr. Carmel Harrington, her own son died unexpectedly 29 years ago, so she had kind of a big personal stake in this. That's kind of what's driven her on with this. And what they did was they used um, dried blood spots that had been taken in a newborn screening program and they did test on them for a particular enzyme called butyrylcholinesterase. Now, I hope you're asking, what is butyrylcholinesterase? Butyrylcholinesterase? Colonesterase. I reckon I could guess that it breaks down butyrylcholinesterol. Well, it kind of does. So, look, it's... It's a kind of a weird thing. Um, mm. So the, what this is, is, is the, the basic idea is that there's something that is stopping certain babies from, I guess, reacting when they're in a dangerous situation. Say so they can't, they have trouble breathing, so that stops them, say, waking up or moving or that sort of thing. And so this is, I guess, focusing on the cholinergic system, which is part of the nervous system that regulates things like sleep and arousal. So, you know, there's a few different other parts of the nervous system people looked at, but this is like focusing on this particular one. Uh, and this part of the nervous system uses a neurotransmitter, acetylcholine. Now, neurotransmitters are the chemicals that pass signals between different neurons uh, at their junctions or synapses, if you will. 
Now, when you have these neurotransmitters, like the chemical pass between, like it sends a message, but then you need to get rid of that neurotransmitter so that it's not doesn't keep sending yeah. the same message repeatedly. Um, so, in this particular system, it's basically it's, it, they get rid of this acetylcholine. It's, um, hydrolysis is the chemical process, and it's done by two particular enzymes. And one of them is butyrylcholinesterase. Um, the main one is actually acetylcholinesterase, which you know, it's acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter. Acetylcholinesterase is the main um, hydrolysis, hydrolyzing enzyme that gets rid of it. So they wanted to test for acetylcholinesterase, obviously, that's kind of the key part here, but they couldn't because it didn't really seem to survive the drying of the blood spot testing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they could measure the levels of butylcholinesterase, which is also involved, and so that's what they focused on in the experiment. Um, and what they did, they compared levels of this butyrylcholinesterase in 20 infants who died of SIDS, and they compared them with 30 infants, so 26 who died of SIDS, compared them with 30 who died of other causes, uh, and then had some matched controls who hadn't died. And they found that there were lower, lower levels of the butyrylcholinesterase in the infants who died of SIDS than those who had died of other causes. So it was a fairly strong signal that they found, which was quite, yeah, a promising thing. And they're saying, oh, well, maybe we could test for this sort of chemical and find out who was vulnerable to uh, to this condition um, but this is where we start to say well okay this is only preliminary research don't get our don't get too far ahead of ourselves I mean this was only a very small sample um, that was what 66 uh, infants that basically they were tested the the fact that the the samples clearly they're changed in the drying process they may not be accurate themselves mm-hmm. and also you know like I said, acetylcholinesterase is kind of the bigger factor there in the signalling, and they couldn't test for that, so you don't really know whether butyrylcholinesterase is the, the real thing there or it's just a sign of something else that's going on that we can't yet measure. You know, it's also possible there may be other causes involved as well because there have been other kind of genetic tests in the past by other groups that have found correlations with something to do, say, with cardiac arrhythmias and other kind of conditions like that. So it's not the end of the story. It may be an important part of the story but um, and a potential clue, but it's certainly not the end of the story and doesn't really give us, I guess, what we're hopeful should be like a screening, um, a screening test that could be used. So, yeah, in the meantime, people do still need to follow the guidelines, which um, can be found at rednose.org, good old Red Nose Day charity, which was started to, you know, to raise money and awareness for for SIDS. Uh, Still going, and they have a very good website that has a lot of sleeping advice, and they have six um, uh, guidelines. There's, um, yes, always put the baby on their back to sleep is obviously the main one that we're familiar with. Um, keep their face and head uncovered because mm. um, overheating is also a big part of it. not just the breathing but the also overheating is, is also a risk factor um, keeping them smoke free smoking is also known to be a risk factor that's one of the things that was identified in the early 90s as well um, having a safe sleeping environment so basically the um, a safe mattress um, nothing else in the bed um, you know, don't have like, you know, toys and bumpers mm. and things like that in the bed. Um, make sure that meets all the standards. Um, keep them sleeping in the same room with you for the first six to 12 months. And um, breastfeed if possible. Um, and obviously that's not possible for everyone, but that has also been shown to be correlated with a um, reduced 
uh, um, rate of SIDS. So yeah, those are the guidelines. Um, I don't expect to remember them all. You can find them, as I said, at rednose.org and hospitals give that out, give them out to new parents. They're widely publicised. Um, and they're also, you know, um, as you were saying, Claire, you know, something that people have to be vigilant about, but they're fairly simple, really. You know, they're, they're non-pharmaceutical, they're straightforward, yeah. you know, techniques um, that, that can be met. So, yeah, look, it's considering the, the costs involved, it's a very, I guess, easy price to pay for the potential cost. Poor analogy, but you understand what I mean. we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find us wherever you found us today again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.